Hello to you all. This is Radio Free Canada. I'm your host, Kevin Hannett. We're back. Yes, we are. Every Sunday here at 3 p.m. Pacific. And we are continuing today our series of online educationals. We are playing, once again, uh, information on the continuity of crime, is the way we put it. The genocide in the past is connected to all of the crimes today of child trafficking, of satanic ritual killing, ongoing genocide, the police state that we are being descended into all the time, this has roots in our history, in the nature of the system we live under. So we thought it appropriate leading into September and our new round of activity, public actions then, to give us more of a background into that continuity of crime between past and present. This show, for those of you who are new, is based on information you can receive at murderbydecree.com, the crime of genocide in Canada. We are the movement that brought to light and to trial the actions of the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches in Canada and around the world, murdering off over 60,000 Native children in Canada. We forced the resignation of Pope Benedict and other top Catholic leaders, and we started a movement based on the sovereign common law that is having reverberations really everywhere. And so we think it's appropriate today to look into some of the roots of how this all came about. We're going to listen to a show from last February where I was um, describing to listeners some of the roots of genocide in Canada and around the world, historic and uh, political and other roots. And it's very appropriate because, uh, and here's a, a few things to flag for today. Um, there was a uh, interesting little news item that came across the wires. If you folks remember our campaign to confront the child-killing missionary Junipero Serra, he was a Franciscan missionary in California who, in the 1700s, worked to death thousands of native non-Catholic, of course, Indians. And there's statues of this bastard all over the place. And uh, we picketed some of these statues. But some good souls in Sacramento, California, have gone forward and done more. They poured blood all over the statue and written murderer on it. And it's very appropriate because the hypocrisy of the statue is the, the it has an image of Sarah... Uh, with his arm around a native child. Don't you think that's very nice? The ones he murdered, he's hugging. Uh, so to confront that hypocrisy, the folks pour blood on it. And, of course, you know, this kind of thing happens all over the place, this kind of hypocrisy. But for you Canadians who might feel smug, if any of you live in Vancouver, go down to the waterfront in New Westminster. You'll see a little plaque there to another killer uh, called John Sheepshanks. Now, John Sheepshanks was the Anglican missionary who poked smallpox inoculations in the arms of the Chilcotin people in 1864 in central British Columbia killed off over 90% of them in just a month. Uh, and then he got rewarded with a seat in the House of Lords. Now, I think it's time to go down and confront that monument. Any of you Vancouver folks who are listening, the hypocrisy and lies of the past continue the crimes of the present, so we have to confront them all the time. And on that note, over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing more background into the whole thing of disappeared people, because on September 6th, and mark this date in your diary, September 6th, the, there will be a, a public release of an appeal in Europe and North America to the governments and people of the world concerning these crimes of the disappeared in Canada and how they're linked to the crimes of genocide in the past. As a matter of fact, what the investigation on the west coast of Canada has discovered is the very same people responsible for the residential school crimes, are also responsible for these ongoing disappearances of Native families to make way for Chinese and American 
multinational corporations going in there and grabbing the land. All of this is in a report which will be released on September 6th in various cities in um, North America and Europe. So on September 10th, we'll have a full report of that on this program, but leading up to that, we'll be having more background shows like this one today on uh, where all these crimes are coming from. And it's appropriate, I think, September 6th was the day that the Mayflower left England to escape from that same kind of papal and monarchical tyranny in Europe to start the Republic, the thing that would lead to the Republic in America. And, uh, you know, we are doing the same thing all the time. We are breaking from the old, establishing the new, a new covenant. And you can read more of that, actually, if you go to our website, itccs.org. There's a statement from the Covenanters, a new separatist spiritual and political movement that has just released their manifesto. Uh, Here we stand, the call of the new Protestant Reformation, summoning God's people in a time of judgment. You can find that at Amazon.com under my name, Kevin Annett, but also there's a notice of it at itccs.org. And um, that, along with other the other six books we published over the last 18 months, give you all of the background into what I'm talking about today. So, um, if you want to be in touch with us, write to us, republicofcanada at gmail.com. But we'll go today to the um, program from last February on the roots of genocide in Canada. And we'll be back again live next week for more of this. Until then, folks, stay strong, stay clear. Here's the program. Two thousand years have passed and gone, many a hero too. But the dream of this poor carpenter remains in the hands of you, remains in the hands of you. And welcome, it's Radio Free Canada. It's Kevin Annis back again, February the 26th. And, you know, well, I think we're going to take a different tack today, folks. We're talking spiritual battle. We just heard one of the oldest ones that in our icons. And the title of today's show, Engaging and Defeating the Real Enemy, Criminal Churches and the Power Behind Them. Spiritual warfare begins with true sight. And as Sun Tzu, General Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, to know your enemy and know yourself means you will never lose a battle. Well, I think, you know, part of our lesson is that many of us, I think all of us being human, enter these conflicts, enter the world blind. And we only learn through a lot of hits. We recover sight through our experiences. And at that point, we ignore our lessons to our own peril. And to me, that's the big question. How do you even begin these campaigns unless we can see clearly? And that doesn't come overnight. It comes through many long nights of suffering and lessons being learned. The key thing now, brothers and sisters, and what we're going to talk about today is how do we learn those lessons from history? How do we apply them today? How have we done that? Because we have won victories along the way. We have brought this oldest, most murderous corporation on the planet to heel. We brought them before a common law court. We did force a response. And that didn't require a lot of people. That required clarity and persistence. Let me share something with you, because part of the show today, we're going to play between quarter after and quarter two. We're going to continue in our lecture series, The Roots of Genocide, because it's very relevant to this. If we want to know where we came from and where this whole thing manifested, we have to know the history. 
So we're going to play that for half the show, and then I'll come on after that uh, for more more to share. But let me introduce this with uh, something, a little passage from my book, Unrelenting, Between Sodom and Zion. You can get that at Amazon.com. It's the latest uh, in the story of this whole whole struggle. Um, it was an incident that happened with a fellow called Mark Angus, and this was in my church in Port Alberni. It's on page 166 of Unrelenting. Mark was a homeless man who came into the church and helped a lot. He got up. He was actually the first person ever to get up on a Sunday when I opened the pulpit for people's comments. It didn't, nothing happened at first, and then after a week or two, Mark finally got up and spoke, and he shared his struggle of what it meant to be an alcoholic, what it meant to lose his kids, just the bleakness of every day, and yet the work we were doing, reaching out to the community, bringing in natives and poor people, and that really inspired him. And so Mark really attached himself to me like his life depended on it, which perhaps it did. And a week before, let me just read here from Unrelenting. A week before he died, Mark asked to see me, but he wouldn't meet in the church. We sat on a park where I always took my daughters. His words to me are too important to paraphrase. This is what he said. I know I don't have much time left. That's why we have to talk. I just can't stay in this world anymore. It doesn't matter if you try talking me out of taking my life. They're going to take me out one way or the other. But that doesn't matter. I just don't want you worrying about me, Kev, because I'm going to be okay. You're the one I worry about. You're the one in real danger here. This thing that's hiding in this town hates what you're doing. You're pulling back its mask, and it hates you for it, and it won't stop until you're dead. It's hiding right inside your own church, and people don't even see it. And you're the one who's been sent to expose it. It hates you because of that, and it wants you dead because it knows you'll never stop. You'll never stop, Kev, even when you lose, even when you lose everything and everyone in your life. Whatever you do, you can't ever stop. This is why you were sent here, to show what this horrible thing is and how it's hiding here in these fake churches and how people have to leave these churches and go back to God. And the only thing that will ever protect you from now on is God. You won't have anything or anyone else on your side. And that's what he said, and the next week he was found dead in a hotel room in Port Alberni. Whether killed, whether took his own life. The point is... Mark's words were prophetic, and in fact, they were the truest words said to me at that time, because it was all borne out, everything. And the mask I began to pull back in Port Alberni, we have pulled back in a big way. And all along the road, the only consistent support I've had is from the unseen, is from the Creator, is from this higher power that acts through us when we let it. And so when we're talking about this whole thing of facing the oldest criminal power on the planet, and we recognize that our methods have to be more than ourselves, we have to begin by saying, well, what is it? What is the nature of the thing we are facing? That's what it means to see ourselves and see the enemy for what they are. And the nature, of course, we've talked about the details of what the Vatican and the corporate world culture that grew out of it, what that embodies. In a worldly sense, it's a vast money-sucking and power-sucking entity. On a spiritual level, it's a spirit-sucking energy. It's attempting to claim all life for itself. And no matter what image it creates for itself, it continues to do that. Crime, crime is sanctioned. It's self-governing. It gets away with crimes against children consistently. And the world cooperates in it because the world is a reflection of it. It's the world that the Vatican created over 2,000 years. When we look at this, and I found an interesting article, I want to share this before, uh, in about six minutes we'll go to that uh, second in my lecture series on roots of genocide, but I wanted to share this. It came out of an uh, article 
in the Washington Post based on a, a survey done, anthropological survey of uh, over several dozen cultures that were studied to find out the roots of ritual sacrificial killing and religion. And in, in these cultures, ritual sacrifice was seen as a way to bring about good for society, for example, creating a plentiful harvest or success in war. But the priests and rulers who sanctioned ritual killings may have had another motive, a recent study suggests. An analysis of more than seven dozen cultures around the world revealed that the practice of human sacrifice tended to make societies less egalitarian and eventually give rise to strict class societies. In other words, ritual killings helped keep the powerful in power and everybody else in check. This study suggests a darker link between religion and the evolution of modern hierarchical societies in which ritual killings helped move society from small egalitarian groups into a stratified state societies we have today. And they show that the more complex and hierarchical society became, the more it did ritual killing. As many as two-thirds of these so-called advanced cultures engaged in ritual killing. So what we recognize is that what we're seeing now when we're talking about the Ninth Circle or these crimes in the residential schools or, or the human trafficking going on, it's just an extension of something that's been going on for many thousands of years. And the Vatican is the most blatant example of it. Um, but it's, it's really at every level, as we know. And um, one of the things that, that, of course, is difficult for us to break free from is all of our own conditioning about this. And as we've talked before in this show, the worst aspect is the way we have been taught to think vicariously. Now, not accidentally, the term vicar, vicar of Christ, vicari Christi, which is the Pope's official title, a vicar or vicarious person is somebody who's taken the place of somebody else. Vicari Christi literally means the replacement of Christ. The Pope replaces Christ as the figure to worship. That's right there in black and white for people to see. But in a broader sense, we live vicariously by living through other people. We can't imagine we can do anything on our own. We have to get a judge or a politician or somebody else to do it. And sure enough, like Mark said, when he said, you're only going to have God on your side with this, Kevin, it's being borne out. People do not hang around this campaign. They back off. They hang back and say, okay, you had a common law verdict. Let's see you arrest the Pope. Let's see you succeed in this, and then maybe I'll join up, Kev. This is the reality. You can count on the number of one hand the people who come forward and said, okay, let's try it now. Let's make these arrests. Let's set up this new jurisdiction. Everybody else hangs back and waits, and that's because most of us have not broken from this way we're trained to, to, to live at a young age, which is you live through somebody else. You don't have an inherent power because you're not aware of your inherent power. The power of the universe that exists in every molecule of our body, once we reclaim that, we are capable of moving mountains. And uh, I always like the, the passage when Jesus goes in and, and overturns the money changers, temp, uh, the tables of the money changers in the temple, which, according to the Gospels, got him crucified directly after that. I remember back in seminary, uh, the consensus of all these staid theology professors was, well, Jesus had to be leading a rebel army, because how could he attack the temple in Jerusalem? Right next door to the Antonian Fortress, where the entire 10th Roman Legion of 6,000 men was heavily armed soldiers was garrisoned. How could Jesus go in that, you know, be ignored by the Sanhedrin guards and the 10th Roman Legion, overturn the money changers at the heart of the church and state power in Jerusalem, and then walk away? He had to be surrounded by a lot of supporters. The reality is, is though, when you're standing in the power of the universe, you can do those kinds of things. 
I experienced that in Rome during the first exorcisms there. I experienced that in Canada when we called down the churches and government, just a few of us, standing in that power. And what was interesting in the whole passage of Jesus is he's not betrayed when he's standing in the power of God. He's betrayed when he goes back to the Garden of Gethsemane and he relies on his friends and the, and the humans around him for help. And guess what? He gets betrayed and they're off to prison and killed. So it's when we rely on each other in a worldly sense. That's where the weakness lies. When we're standing in the true power of the universe and creation, nothing can touch us. And that's something we all have to learn because we're not going to make any movement in this campaign until we learn that simple lesson born from our own experience. We've all gone through this. We just have to learn the lessons of what we've been through in our own life and not ignore them. So I don't want to ignore the lessons from history either. This is why I did this lecture series in The Roots of Genocide. Last week we played um, part one. Today now for the next half hour we're going to listen to part two of the lecture series. This is looking how genocide really arose within Europe, how it attacked European indigenous populations before it came over to the New World, and it's really the same monster. We're looking at some aspects of this uh, history. And um, I'll get Don to play this now for the next half hour, and at a quarter to two I'll come back on the air for, for some more comments. Okay, thank you. Hope you enjoy it. Well, uh, welcome back to our second lecture on the nature and history of genocide. And to put it in context, I wanted to um, lay out for those who weren't here that what we're talking about is really a fundamental question. It has to do with the nature of a culture that not only committed genocide against Native people, but actually, and I'll talk about this tonight, had to commit the same kinds of crimes against the indigenous populations of Europe. So I want to talk about how this seems to be something innate within our culture, within the religion, which causes these things to happen. Last time I showed this, I didn't show it, but I described the symbol, and I want to talk about it again. This is the laburnum, and this was a Roman cavalry symbol. For those of you listening, it's a backward P. Well, it's a frontward P, actually. Sometimes it goes back, but with an X through it. And it's often uh, it's a liturgical symbol you see on the garbs of Catholic and Protestant clergy. And this was a, actually a Roman cavalry symbol that was adopted wholesale by the Catholic Church and turned into a religious symbol. So for me, it's a symbol of how um, state, statified Christianity simply put a religious legitimation on war. And so what we describe as Christendom, that is Christianity allied with the state power, was a means by which that conquest of the world got a relig religious legitimation, and I want to talk about that tonight, but especially in how it began to play out in North America after about 1500. I want to start with a quote from Karl Marx in Volume 1 of Capital, where he says, quote, The discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the Aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins all signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. Thus, through these idyllic proceedings, did Christianity assert its divine right to conquer the world, unquote. So, uh, besides this kind of ironic uh, humor there, Karl Marx is describing how really the process of Christianizing the world and capitalizing the world were really one and the same in the minds of the Europeans. Behind this economic motive for profit that Marx describes, 
that guided a lot of the colonial conquest of the world, there also lay a religious imperative that I've described as Christendom, which required that all peoples of the earth either be made into Christians or exterminated. And in my first lecture, I described how and why Christendom arose as a lethal synthesis between the Roman state and a Christian church convinced of its own innate superiority. I'd like to summarize again the main points of what I talked about last time, especially since some of you are new, and to show how that whole philosophy was behind genocide. So these are the main points from last week's lecture. First of all, genocide is the systematic and calculated eradication of any group. It's really the philosophy that says we have to exterminate the stranger. The term genocide wasn't coined until 1944, but it was developed by Europeans and as such was never understood as having emerged from within European society itself. When you look at the early writings on genocide right after World War II, it was almost the assumption that this was something that was an aberration. But in fact, genocide is a system, I claim, that's unique to European society having arisen from within Christianity and manifested fully once the Christian church merged with the Roman state and its descendants. Second point, the classical Greek philosophical foundations of Christianity, and especially the writings of Aristotle, were rooted in the belief that the powerful had the right and the duty to subdue and rule over the weak because of an innate moral superiority and the existence of natural hierarchies. So this philosophy of might makes right, combined with Christianity's universal desire to conquer all people, lay the basis for genocide in the modern world and continues to be present in a more unstated way in our culture. Thirdly, this new civil religion called Christendom, which came out of the ashes of the Roman Empire, fused the features of an imperial state with a formal institution of the Christian church. And what I talked about last time was the fact that what was actually created at the time of Constantine didn't really bear a lot of resemblance to the early Christian church. In fact, in the year 317, the church incorporated under Roman law became a legal corporation in order to receive bequests and inheritances. And as such, as a legal corporation, was became an arm of the state and the church leaders trustees of a state-managed company. So the Catholic and Protestant churches that evolved from this corporation, if you like, have not only been tied to the whole you know, project of the different European states of conquest, but they've been tied ideologically to those states as well, which, and I used the example last time of um, why no Christian church in North America dared to enact the nonviolent priest, the teachings of Jesus and run a full-page ad in the New York Times of the picture of Saddam Hussein with the words under it, love your enemy. They wouldn't dare to do that because they'd lose their tax status. They might end up in jail for acting on the most basic Christian teaching of loving your enemy and turning the other cheek. So that tells you something about the nature of the modern churches and their relationship to the state. Fourth point is the, um, the so-called age of discovery, which we've been taught in, in school, began around 1500. When you look at it, it was actually an era of religious imperialism in which the whole philosophy of the superiority of Christianity fueled the genocide of many millions of peop non-Christian people, as we know. Now, when you examine it, this genocide was in reality a legal crusade against non-Christians, which was formally inaugurated in 1493 by a Vatican law called the Intercatera. The Intercatera sanctioned and required the conquest of all non-Christian peoples by Christian kings. It absolved, as happens in a crusade, it absolved all acts of murder and conquest done in the name of the church, 
and it declared that non-Christians had no rights or separate existence since they occupied a legal condition called terra nullius, which in the law means the land of no one. That is, they were members of a non-existing species. And in other words, non-Christians were and remain non-existing people in the mind and laws of Christendom. That's a very important point. We'll come back to that. Fifth point was the conquest of the New World, in other words, was a religious crusade, a mission that outweighed all other legal and moral considerations. You know, if it was simply uh, an economic uh, drive by the Spanish to get the gold or by the British and the French to get the furs and the fish, they wouldn't have absolved themselves so absolutely from all crimes done against indigenous people. Uh, to give you an, it would be kind of like claiming that Hitler invaded uh, dis, you know, in a lot of countries in Europe simply to get the resources. We know that isn't true. We know that there was a whole uh, philosophy of uh, ethnic cleansing and anti-Semitism behind that. Well, what's hard for us to acknowledge is that as inheritors of, that, of a similar kind of empire, we weren't motivated by the same kind of racist ideology. In fact, we were, and that's what we're examining. The sixth point is... Um, it was, and this is kind of the main point I made last time, it was never the intent of Christendom to exterminate all Aboriginal people. Simply do a number of things. Destroy their non-Christian identity and resistance. Seize their land. Cull down their numbers to a manageable level. And this was one of the main functions of the residential schools. We find when we look at the death rate of, on average, 50% across the decades in every school, we see that there's a policy there of simply culling down the numbers to a certain level by deliberately exposing the children to tuberculosis and not treating them and those kinds of actions. All of that is explainable when you look at it in the wider context. If you have the lone nut theory of the residential schools, it doesn't make any sense. You can't uh, use that to explain how half the children died. So culling down the numbers, a very important uh, aim of genocide. And finally, isolating and controlling the surviving remnant of the native people through special legislation and agencies like Indian residential schools and reserves. So the legal genocide that occurred took place according to an underlying script of Christian superior dominion, which simply doesn't recognize the right of non-Christians to resist Christianity. So that's what I went over last time. And this today, tonight, I want to look a bit more at how it began to manifest in the new world, especially in Canada. The consequences of this religious imperialism are well known to, to many of us. Probably 50 million native people in the New World were exterminated, the largest mass murder in human history. Because the motive force behind this genocide was from the same religion that at the same time was preaching love and compassion, it's been really impossible for, for us and for history to see past the appearance of Christianity to the Christian reality. We cannot conceive that Adolf Hitler was capable of loving children, when in fact I'm sure he did love certain kinds of children and abhorred other kinds. Similarly, Christianity has accorded infinite value to those within its own circle and yet violently condemned those outside the circle in the manner of genocide everywhere. There's two standards, and I mentioned this last time. There's a double standard, double moral standard at work for those within the circle and those outside it. Now, that double moral standard has to really be understood if the Christian basis of genocide in the New World is to be grasped. That genocide was driven by a religious creed, but as we know, it was also propelled by economic forces, which were transforming Europe around 1500 and inflicting much of the same suffering on the indigenous people of Europe, especially the traditional peasantry.
like an uncontrollable monster, the genocide doesn't just strike out at other peoples, but eventually ends up consuming itself. And it actually started historically within Europe. Uh, the most obvious examples of this genocide were, of course, during the witch hunting craze, where millions of men and women uh, were murdered simply because they, their crime was to cling to pre-Christian traditions of healing and religious practice. Of course, the other uh, major example of, was the consistent slaughter of Jews by European Christianity, which, of course, didn't originate with Hitler. He, Hitler was really enacting a lot of the laws that the churches had first brought in as early as 285 AD, which separated Christians and Jews from marriage and from living together. The extermination of dissenting Christians like the Cathars by the Vatican in the 13th century, when you look at that, those crusades done within Europe, it bore exactly the same legal justification and belief system which was displayed by missionaries in the New World. An attitude which is typified by this example, the uh, Catholic Bishop of Toulouse, Jacques Bézier, in the year 1315, was asked whether all of the town's inhabitants should be condemned simply because of the presence of Cathars among them. And Bézier replied, quote, kill them all, God will know his own. That's played out, and there's a modern, uh, I saw a t-shirt of a, a mercenary in Africa, and it said, um, kill them all, God will sort them out. I mean, that ideology is coming to the present time. And yet even these Christian imperialists could appreciate how this system of internal genocide was actually destroying the foundations of their own society. Thomas More, the Chancellor of England, who burned a number of heretics in his day, wrote in 1521 about how the growth of European capitalism was destroying many English farmers and driving them off their land because of the enclosure of the common land by wealthy English uh, landowners in order to grow wool for export markets. And he wrote in his book Utopia, You noblemen and gentlemen, and even abbots and holy men, leave no ground for the tillers, for you enclose all into pastures for your sheep. The husbandmen are thrust out on their own, or else into crime and fraud. For by violent oppression, by one means or another, they must depart away. The poor wretched souls, men, women, fatherless children, woeful mothers with their young babes, as their household becomes small in substance and their suffering much in number. And when they wander abroad till spent, what else can they do but steal and then be hanged, or else go about begging? Now, in the same way that Indians were treated by their conquerors in the Americas, the rural poor of England to take one example, were whipped, branded, hanged, and disemboweled if they tried to remain on their ancestral land in the face of their landlord's desire to use their land for their own enterprises like wool production. Now, ironically, many of these people who were dispossessed from their land, including my ancestors from Scotland in the late 1700s, they ended up coming to the New World and inflicting the same crimes on Aboriginal people here. For example, um, one of the most uh, numerous groups of people that came to New France when the French were settling that in the 1500s, 1600s, a lot of them, when you look at it, came from the western provinces in France, which had been the seat of a lot of peasant discontent, peasant uprising and rebellions, and many of these people were simply shipped over to the New World. So, in effect, people on both sides of the Atlantic were, were victimized. The truth is that Christian-based genocide was a conquering force that devoured the indigenous people of Europe as well as the New World. By the year 1850, the Industrial Revolution had not only exterminated most of the New World Indians, but it eradicated the rural masses of Europe, despoiled their land, and driven their surviving remnants into disease-filled cities and slums where they struggled as landless workers 
in the New World era of their time, New World Order. So in other words, in America, the Americas, Christendom's opponents ended up on reserves, Indian reserves. In Europe, they were entombed in industrial workshops, but the aim was the same, the elimination of all traditional non-Christian rural-based peoples and their societies and their replacement with Christian industrial capitalism. Now, this was a war that has taken place for more than 500 years and continues, but its seeds lay not only in the nature of Christendom as an imperial creed of conquest, but in the empires of money and warfare that increasingly worked hand-in-hand -hand with the church to destroy the indigenous peoples around the world. Now, to give you some, some historical facts, this war really began in earnest a year after the Pope declared the Intercaterra Bull. In the year 1494, the Pope sat down with uh, Spain and Portugal and devised a thing called the Treaty of Tordesillas, which basically drew a line down the center of the globe and divided the world in two. Spain got the entire Western Hemisphere except for Brazil, and Portugal got Brazil and all of Africa and Asia, which is why people in Brazil today speak Portuguese. But in effect, the Pope said, you have those two spheres of influence and you can't interfere in, in others um, in with one another. Now, the Protestant nations, of course, weren't part of that. They were tended to be pushed to the periphery in the north, although that changed because Spain as a semi-feudal power couldn't really withstand the grown industrial might of the Dutch and the English and the French. I don't think the indigenous people of those areas knew at the time that this aging fellow on a papal throne had just given away all their lands. Um, but as one comic has said, Christianity means never having to say you're sorry. And he said in relation to uh, at least the era of colonialism. But this Treaty of Tordelaisis opened the floodgate for European expansionism. Within an, a few years, the whole New World was being flooded with soldiers of fortune, missionaries, but primarily in, in terms of Canada and the U.S., uh, initially fishermen and, and, uh, and the uh, missionaries who came in their wake. In other words, none of the European powers wanted to be left out of the sudden scramble for wealth. Spain, of course, at the time was the superpower of the day and dominated the main rape of the New World through the, the attack in, the, in Central America on the Mayan and Aztec people. Within 50 years of Columbus's landfall in the Caribbean, over a million Indians had died. The Arawaks, the Caribs, the Tainos were dead from disease, smallpox, war, or being worked to death in the gold mines of the Dominica Republic. Marginal powers like in England were forced north into the very, nevertheless, very rich fishing, fishing grounds of the Grand Banks. Uh, Jean Cabot, who first landed there in the f late 1490s, said, quote, the cod are so numerous that we have only to lower our baskets into the waters to have them filled. So it is uh, plentiful in resources, and this was one of the things that attracted the Europeans so quickly. Now, Cabot had been granted a charter by King Henry VII, which is very similar to the Intercaterra, to, quote, occupy, possess, and subdue these people as our vassals. And yet in the Northern Americas, this effort where we live now, this effort went very slowly at first. While the Spanish had pretty much eradicated the Aztec and Mayan by 1600, the Europeans had barely a foothold in Canada and the U what would become the U.S. by that time. This wasn't for want of trying. When Jacques Cartier arrived in 1534 into what is now New Brunswick, he subjected the native people there to salvos of cannon fire, with filled with sulfur, lead, broken glass, and mercury. And then he demanded of the survivors that they trade with him. And according to Cartier, quote, 
They bartered all that they had, and they all went back to their homes without anything on them. So it's kind of ironic that Cartier would then comment on these people and calling, calling them savage. He said, These people can be called savage, for they must be the poorest people on earth, for altogether they have not the value of five sous among them, and yet they share whatever they have and live in a true community of goods. They are utter strangers to distinctions of property, for what belongs to one is equally another's. Now, I found this a very interesting quote because he's describing, if you read in the book of Acts in the Bible, the descriptions of the early Christian communities, the, um, Acts 2 and 5, they described that the Christians held all things in common and there was no poverty among them because people shared whatever they had with one another. So perhaps the, the church by then, which had been so turned away from that simple path by wealth and power, got uncomfortable with seeing this Christian example being lived by the native people of the New World. And this might have uh, increased the resolve to destroy that subversive example that might have influenced too many Christians to actually try to live Christianity. So I think that this might have been behind part of the motivation in the sudden eradication of those people uh, by the Catholic and Protestant churches. But this eradication was kind of stalled in what's now Canada for about 100 years because in the 1500s, these wars of religion broke out in Europe between Catholic and Protestant, and that occupied France especially. But by around 1600, France began to penetrate eastern Canada in a big way and establish settlements on the banks of the St. Lawrence, opening up fur trade with the Algonquin-speaking nation known as the Huron. Now, the English began to eat, work north from their settlements along the Hudson River in New York, and they came into direct clash around 1610 with the French in, um, in New France. But by that time, the... Um, Spain, which had been the leading imperial power, had been confined by the efforts by the English and the Dutch. Actually, the Dutch won their independence from Spain during the 1500s. And these, uh, this kind of power vacuum allowed the, Fran the, the French to, to supersede the Spanish. The first, uh, France was the first country, actually, to develop um, a national market and a banking system. And this allowed very large companies to emerge in France, which saw the fur trade as the way for them to build up capital. And, in fact, when you look at the, the, uh, the main reason, there's a famous quote from Madame de Pompadour, who is the mistress of Louis XIV, um, and she said, Canada is only useful for providing me with furs. Kind of the attitude of the French ruling class back then. But the, the thing to remember is that this invasion and the creation of New France was a joint effort very much by the church and state, the early communities in, Fran in New France, uh, what became Quebec, were ruled by a triumvirate of three people, the military governor, a soldier, uh, the intendant, who was the, uh, the civil administrator from France, and the Catholic bishop. And these people made all the laws and ruled. And interestingly, right up until what was called the Quiet Revolution in Quebec in the 1960s, you had that kind of unity of church and state going on uh, where the church ran the educational system and so on. So, like the British, however, the French were in a very weak position related to, relation to the Indian nations they encountered. And so the first thing they tried to do, they didn't try to exterminate them like the Spanish did. They sought to build alliances and even treaties. The Catholic Church and especially the Jesuits were the main force in getting the Huron to form alliances with the French and to form a military pact against the British and the Iroquois and Mohawk allies. Of course, the impact on the local Indian nations was disastrous. By 1600, smallpox had destroyed over half of the native people along the St. Lawrence River. 
Indians were encouraged to war on one another by Jesuit missionaries who supplied them with arms and alcohol. And as the British moved north to uh, infringe on the French settlements, the Hurons were forced to fight the Iroquois in a struggle which would eventually lead to the complete extermination of the Huron nation. The, this war was all about furs and about religion. To quote one Catholic bishop who lived in New France at the time, quote, It is expedient that there be no peace at all between our Huron brothers and their neighbors. For if the Huron were at peace with the Iroquois, they would be induced to trade with the English and Dutch heretics, and our power in New France will be eroded. This coming war is very necessary if we are not to risk losing the whole south shore of the St. Lawrence, and indeed all of Canada. Unquote. Now the fur trade, as all the early industries in New France, were actually owned by the Jesuits and their wealthy associates in the state-sanctioned uh, companies out of France. The average profits from the fur trade was in the thousands of percent every year, um, partly because of the extreme exploitation that the native people were in relation to that. The native people who went out to trap and then um, prepare the pelts, the fur pelts, it was, it was very common for a thousand beaver pelts to be traded simply for a single knife or pane of glass. Now, the missionary efforts of the, you know, we learned in school about, uh, you know, Father Jean Brebeuf and the Jesuit missionaries. When you look at where the missionaries went, they, they, their efforts were aimed primarily at weakening the traditional intertribal loyalties, which stood in the way of the expansion of the fur trade. I mean, the native people had no reason to be slaughtering all the beaver and providing so many furs to the Europeans. Only by breaking the traditional tribal loyalties and alliances could that fur trade happen. And that was the main purpose of the Jesuit missionaries, to do that. The divisions and conflict caused by the conversion of native people fatally weakened the Huron nation. To quote Jean Brebeuf of what they did when they moved into a native area, quote, our converts are always camped separately from their family members and neighbors so as to avoid all contact with the sinful ones. So they're creating these divisions within Huron society. By 1650, warfare, warfare and smallpox had nearly annihilated all the Huron, as well as many of the victorious Iroquois as well. On average, nearly two-thirds of all Indian people who had any contact with European died of smallpox in this period. The remnant survivors were in, invariably expelled and driven west in a genocidal practice termed by Jean Brebeuf himself as, quote, this famous quote, what is required for the faith and fur trade. Two go hand in hand, you see. Now, these essential features and methods of European genocide remained intact throughout the entire history of Christian contact with the Indian nations of Canada. Only the tactics varied. And this became apparent when you look at the difference between the British and the French and their relationship to native people. The French tended to use uh, church-led trade and military alliances to conquer the Indian lands, but the Brit British had a different method. Um, they, had, they created an aura of pseudo-legal treaties where they would sit down and actually pretend to acknowledge the native nation as equal partners. The most uh, blatant example of this was the Royal Proclamation of 1763, <laughs> which was supposed to, it's often cited by native nations today and was supposed to be used as a, to indicate that George III had recognized Aboriginal title. But what's not described is that whenever those treaties were signed, there was a preamble which said all land is invested in the British crown. So in effect, there, and still to this day, the assumption on all treaty makings is that, well, this is still crown land. So they, you know, they, the British gave themselves a, 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 a kind of a notwithstanding clause 
that you get in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Yeah, we can sign these treaties, but of course you know that ultimately the Crown owns all the land. And thereby, thereby nullifying any attempt by Native people later to claim the land for themselves. So this big lie has continued to characterize land claims negotiations in Canada today, which is especially in BC why Native sovereigns say that they aren't entering the treaty process because it's a big scam. But you can see the scam started long ago. It didn't just start with Pierre Trudeau. So while, while pretending to value the Iroquois and other Indian nations as equal partners, the British, in fact, began conducting biological warfare and slavery among East Coast Indian people. British General Amherst, who has an entire Nova Scotian city named after him, Amherst, Nova Scotia, pioneered the spreading of blankets infected with smallpox among the Mi'kmaq Indians. And a practice he uh, recorded in his personal journal because he obviously lacked any fear of retribution for his actions. In 1749, the uh, Nova Scotia legislature passed this thing, which is a scalping proclamation. And it was actually a law in Nova Scotia, and it granted 10 guineas to anyone who brought in the scalpel of a Mi'kmaq Indian. And in an in a addendum to this in 1763, it said that if you brought in the scalp of a woman or a child, you got five guineas. So this was an actual law on the books. And um, Ray was saying that he doesn't know if the law has actually been revoked yet. But uh, that's something worth looking at. A lot of these laws you know, are actually still on the books, which tells you something right there. Now, Indian slavery in Canada isn't really known that much, but it was actually officially instituted by both the British and the French during the fur trade wars of the 1600s and continued right up into the early 1800s. So widespread was the practice that as late as 1761, over one-tenth of all the burials in Montreal were those of Indian slaves. These slaves were called pani, P-A-N-I-S, in French. It comes from the word uh, for, the, from, for the Pawnee Indians who had faced a similar fate in the United States. Indian slaves ranked on the same social scale as Negro slaves who were imported into New France in 1606 and used by both the French and the British as both field workers, uh, domestic slaves, and in construction. Much of Halifax was actually built on slave labor. And regular slave auctions were held in Halifax in the marketplace and in Montreal until 1818 when the British began to reverse their policy of slavery. So that little brief introduction to the contact of the British and the French in, in Canada with the Indian nations indicates not only how consistent has been the genocidal aim of destroying non-Christian Indians, but it also shows how intimately connected the church and the state have been from the beginning in this operation. And that's important in terms of today when you hear talk in the media of, you know, that there were somehow different actors in the residential schools, that the churches weren't really to blame, the government set it up. In practice, there was no separation of church and state in Canada. That idea is a Republican notion that never took place and really took hold in Canada. It may have south of the border, but in Canada, the um, feudal empire, which was based on Christendom, was never overthrown here. There was an attempt in 1837 to do that in Upper and Lower Canada, which was defeated, and a f the feudal system reestablished itself. Uh, and so when that feudal state has simply evolved and never actually been done away with, naturally the same systems and ideologies are going to stay intact. Uh, systems like a state-appointed judiciary in Canada, the existence of a non-representative officer like the Governor General, who is not answerable to anybody in Canada, just to the British Crown. Those are colonial features that still in, stay intact. And in fact, 
the best example I can think of is here in BC where it really was the frontier and the, the colonial system was never really changed. The attorney general, which is representative of the party in power, is the person still to this day who tells the police who to lay criminal charges against. The police don't have any autonomy in BC. The party in power can tell the police to lay off their friends, can uh, tell them to press criminal charges against people they don't like. It's a totally politicized system, which is characteristic of a colonial system of power. But at the heart of that system of power in Canada is the predominance of Protestant and Catholic churches, which are not only armed with the power of the state, but they have been granted an absolute immunity under the law for any crimes they perpetrated against non-Christian native nations. Now, this immunity has been demonstrated over the past few years in the extent to which the, the courts of Canada and the parliament simply refuse to prosecute the Christian churches for their proven crimes in the residential schools. And yet such immunity should not be surprising when one considers that the Christian churches themselves embodied the very purpose behind European conquest of the Americas, which was the destruction of all non-Christian indigenous people. The churches not only led this destruction, but they were in reality the main actors in genocide on this continent. The power and inspiration behind the state and ultimately the decision makers when it came to the fate of native people. So just as anti-Semitism and racial eugenics was the legitimating ideology and the fuel behind Nazism, so too was Christian superior dominion, the idea behind genocide in the New World. That may be a hard fact for Canadians to accept, but it is inevitable when you look at the evidence. And the details of how and why this occurred in Canada among the different regions and the different Indian nations is going to be the topic of the lectures in the future. Thank you. And we're back. That was part two of a lecture series I gave actually 15 long years ago now, in 2002, at the Canadian Auto Workers Hall in New Westminster, British Columbia. And um, I got some uh, emails in the course of that series just now, that lecture that you were hearing. And uh, one of the questions is, are you saying that all Christian churches are bad? <laughs> Excuse me. Well, um, put it this way. What people call themselves and what they do are often two different things, but we know that the corporate institution, and I make a distinction between a congregation, a small group of people, reading the Bible, following their own religious practice, not hurting anybody, uh, that's different than what these churches represent, because what you know is the Anglican, the United, the Catholic churches, etc. They're incorporated bodies. They are trustee officers, the ones who run those churches, are trustees of the state. And uh, they are corporate bodies, not answerable even to their own members. And, you know, I, I experienced that very directly and personally when I was thrown out of the church without any due process. And my local congregation were told they couldn't do anything about it. It was in the hands of the uh, higher-ups, the Presbyterian conference officials. So that's an example of what we're dealing with. No, I mean, when you look in the Bible, there's no church hierarchy ever recommended there. Uh, the Bible doesn't mention popes, doesn't mention bishops, doesn't mention ecclesiastical authority. It just talks about local congregations of Christians meeting, led by what are called presbyters and elders. You know, local elders, local pastors who help the people and that, but no hierarchy at all. So I would say if you're going to be a Christian, follow that biblical model. Forget about bishops, forget about corporate institutions. Now don't forget, too, in the course of this lecture series, when I'm talking about Christianity... Um, we're now talking about how Christianity has evolved into a global corporatocracy. So before, genocide used the ideology of Christianity to conquer people. 
that same ideology now has morphed into a corporate worldview. So before, you weren't allowed to stay outside the Christian faith. Now you're not allowed to stay outside corporate capitalism. If you try it, you're stomped on in a big way. So it's the same system at work under a different label. And that's why we have to be careful about the labels and the appearance of any politician, any church leader, no matter what they call themselves. And I'm reminded that of these days of uh, when some people are going all gaga over Donnie Trump, the CEO of America, um, you know, and how he's somehow going to bring in the new age. <laughs> it's like um, when the other day, and this is kind of funny, Jorge Bagaglio, the child trafficker from Buenos Aires, who now calls himself Pope Francis, declared that he stands behind the Standing Rock Indians. Well, how do you do that and also support Junipero Serra, the Franciscan missionary who killed off thousands of Indians? You see, the, every politician, whether secular or religious, wore two masks. And I think we should follow the advice in the Psalms, Book of Psalms. It says, put not your trust in princes. Anyway, in the next five minutes, I also want to point out um, a simple uh, direction. Like we have talked now on these shows about... What do we do? The whole emphasis has been on practical application of what we're doing. So, yeah, the first step is awakening to what we're part of and educating one another. The second step is a stumbling block because we have to act on what we know. And there's a lot of psychological barriers to that, as we know, a lot of personal barriers, simple fear, lacking models of how to go about it. But we have created a new model through the common law courts. Um, and really, it's not so much about taking on the system as withdrawing from it. And that's the third phase of withdrawal. It means creating a new sovereignty. And, of course, that word has been officially outlawed now in the corporatocracy in America or Canada or wherever. The word sovereign person is now considered the uh, statement of a terrorist. That's in the FBI and RCMP training manuals now. They say, watch out that, for that word sovereignty. Well, no doubt, because what we're saying in that word is that a sovereign is someone who operates only according to their own authority. They cannot be tried by any law to which they do not give consent. So when we talk about creating a new sovereignty, we're talking personally, we're talking spiritually, we're talking politically, all three. And we try to unite those in everything we do. And that's, again, of these educational shows, that's what we're trying to get through to people all the time, that in your local community, when you take action, let's say you pull a group of people together to talk about the local degree of child abuse and child trafficking going on, as people in various places in Ontario are trying to do now. Um, <clears throat> what you have to do is you're not, you, you have to recognize you can't look to anybody but yourself. And that means you rely on each other. You hold your local assemblies. You do it consistently. You know, there's an old saying, if you do something once or twice or ten times, it doesn't have any impact in the long run. You've got to do it over and over and over. You've got to have a new priority in your life and do this every day of your life and not dabble in it. And, you know, it's a sad fact that when people have options in their life, um, when they still have a home, when they still have a job, when they still have a family, that comes first. It doesn't matter if there's somebody dying outside your door or the, the society is becoming a police state. That's not as important as our own immediate life. That's part of being human, unfortunately. Uh, that psychology, that insular psychology, and it's usually only the people who've had it all stripped away who then have to say, okay, now we have to do something different. And frankly, those are the people I work with. Those are the ones who, like me, have gone through that fire, have come out the other end, and we recognize our own power, our own immortality, if you like, that we cannot be touched when we're standing in that power. And 
So, you know, what we, we recognize is that not everybody can do that. There was only kind of a, a vanguard of people who've been through that. But like Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, you don't appeal to a majority because in any army, in any battle, you have to reflect the weakness of the of the weakest element. And so you don't operate according to majorities. That's fatal in battle. You are operating according to seasoned veterans. And those are the ones we try to reach out and unite and educate and organize through this program. The rest, we try to bring along. But the reality is, there's not a lot of us leading this fight. But that's all right, because you don't need a lot. Uh, we We didn't need very many people to turn this whole issue around of exposing genocide in Canada. And the repercussions are constant. I've been getting uh, emails and, and calls over the last little while from people who, for the first time in years now, are helping to identify the mass grave sites again. People are coming forward now. I got a um, call from a woman the other day who said she knows the mine shaft where these children were taken on buses, poisoned with arsenic, and then dumped down. And uh, I won't say where that is, but it happened in Canada. We have eyewitnesses to that. These people are coming forward now because they're encouraged. So I want to just leave it on that in the last minute. Uh, remind people, go to murderbydecree.com, itccs.org. Write to us, republicofcanata at gmail.com. Next week, uh, we'll be having more on this theme, but also part three in our lecture series, The Roots of Genocide. And please keep writing that to us, republicofcanata at gmail.com. And uh, we're not only taking up on the ideas you put forward for programs, but we're actually helping to unite you and organize uh, groups starting small, but that's the seed of the new society. So I want to thank you all for tuning in again. Uh, We'll be on there again next week, of course, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern at bbsradio.com slash radiofreecanada. We are also broadcasting Radio Free Anglia in the British Isles now at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, and 7 p.m. Greenwich time every Sunday. So please tune into that on the Freedom Talk Radio Scotland network. It's been... uh, an honor once again, and it's been fun. And don't forget to get Unrelenting, Murder by Decree, and the other books at Amazon.com. Just put my name in, and you'll see them. So until next week, brothers and sisters, stay strong, stay clear. We'll talk to you then. Thank you. 